Today we'll be looking at Psalm 92. And if you notice in your Bible, there is a heading. Now, those headings you see in the, particularly in the Psalms are not inspired of the Holy Spirit, but they are helpful. Notice it says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Now, in Jewish culture, you need to understand, Sabbath started Friday evening, ended Saturday evening. Now, we're not, we, we don't follow the Sabbath anymore, but this is interesting because for Christians, Sunday is the Lord's Day. The Bible calls Sunday the Lord's Day. It's a special day to gather together with other like-minded believers. We come to corporately worship God, to honor Jesus Christ. Now, while the Old Testament saints met, of course, for public worship on the Sabbath, Christians in the New Testament times assembled to praise God on the first day of the week. What changed that, by the way? Well, Easter, right? Jesus' resurrection on Sunday morning changed all that. and So in addition to this designated time, believers should worship God every day of the week. Not just on a Sabbath, not just on a Sunday, but every day of the week. Worship is should be something just who you are. It's not something you do, per se. Worship should be a lifestyle, if you will. It's just a continual experience of you magnifying God. And so that adoration should be carried out through uh, your character, through your actions, through your thoughts, through your words, through your whole conduct. So wherever you are, that place should be transformed into a palace for worship. Whatever you're doing, that activity can become a platform for worship. So, ceaseless praise, if you will, is kind of the theme of this psalm. It is the theme of this psalm, ceaseless praise. It's, it's an all-day, everyday thing. It needs to become a living reality for you and every believer. Nevertheless, the public gathering of God's people is a very special privilege. should be maximized to the fullest. We see over and over again, and particularly in Psalms, there's this concept mentioned there of corporate worship. This is one of those examples we see here in Psalm 92. But we've got to ask this question, how should the Lord's Day be observed? How should praise be brought to God? And, and why, for that fact? Why bring praise to God? <laughs> he doesn't need it. What do we have that would we can offer to God. I mean, think about it. <laughs> Not much, right? But Psalm 92 gives helpful instruction in worshiping God in the public gathering of His people. And so that superscription, that title next to Psalm 92 there that mentions for the Sabbath was originally in, intended, by the way, to direct worshipers in their Sabbath worship of God. It's helpful. And so we need to see why is that there? What's the original intent? And so in the post-exilic community, that's after the exile, after they came out of Babylon and Persia, the ones that came back, this particular psalm was helpful. It came to be actually sung in the temple on the Sabbath. And they would do it during the time of the morning sacrifice. 
It is an exuberant, joyful celebration of the person and work of God. That is the point of the sacrifice, is it not? And so all the particulars of praising God that are detailed here are not just for Old Testament Israel. They're also applicable to us, New Testament worshipers today. So, in other words, what I'm saying is there's principles here. There's guiding principles of this particular psalm that should be observed by all Christians even today. So that's the, 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 the theme, if you will, is found for us even here in the, in the first verse. Look at Psalm 92, verse 1, which says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. So here's the theme. I'll put it on the screen. If you get nothing else from the message, Psalm 92, at least remember the theme, that it is good to ceaselessly praise God. It's good. So, here's where we're headed. In the first three verses, we're going to think about what is the goodness of praise. We're going to look at some results of praise, some some reasons why we should praise God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. It's all about praise of God. But first of all, in these first three verses, let's think about the goodness of praise. So, the central theme of this psalm is is found right here in verse 1. And so everything that that follows is kind of a a subheading. It's pointing to this theme, if you will, of of ceaselessly praising God. But you need to understand something about the word good. The word good is, shall we say, overused today, right? And, And because it's kind of overused and we don't necessarily use it in the right context, we may not understand what the Bible is saying. Worshiping God is more than just beneficial. It, it, it is, we usually, when, when we think of the word good, that's how we often imply it, though, when we use that word good. We could say, as we look at verse 1 here, that praising God is something that is more than just beneficial. It's delightful. It's precious, glorious, splendid. It's the most reasonable thing to do. So those are some synonyms, if you will, there. It might help you understand what God is saying when he says, it is good to give thanks to Yahweh. It's delightful, it's precious, glorious, splendid, the most reasonable thing for you to do. So, as we think about the goodness of praise, verse 1 is showing us that it is good to praise the Lord. By the way, notice Lord's all capital letters. When you see that in your Old Testament, it just is referring to God's name of Yahweh, Hebrew name Yahweh. So worshiping God is something that's fitting. It's reasonable for you to do this. In fact, it's the most reasonable thing for you to do. It's, it's a glorious thing for us in particular to come together in corporate worship and sing praises to God's name. It's reasonable for us to worship in giving of of some of our resources. Every time you drop it in the offering box or your electronic banking does it for you or however, that's reasonable. Every time we, we hear a sermon and we're worshiping God during that sermon, that's reasonable. He is to be worshiped. Why, though? 
Why is that a good thing? Why is it reasonable? Because of the greatness of who he is and what he has done, what he's promised to do in the future. And so if you do not find the worship of God to be enjoyable, ooh, my friend, it's not because God is boring. (laughs) It's not because God's boring. And you can't blame it on the church either. It's not because the liturgy or the whatever style of a church, it's not because it's boring. It's you. You're the problem. So, you know, it's not because, well, that church has a traditional style of music, and so that's boring, and, you know, it it has nothing to do with the style of music the church chooses. If you don't find the worship of God to be enjoyable, it's you. It's because you don't know God much at all. That's the problem. And so the more you know God, then the more enjoyable the praise of God will be to you. Right? So you need to understand that because I think there's, there, there's because there's bad theology in churches, they, they end up with bad methodology. Right? You've heard me say method, theology always drives the methodology. So if, if you have a low view of God, if you don't know God, a lot of times you end up with artificial stimulation in churches trying to drive, you know, well, because we got bad theology, we got to artificially stimulate our services with light shows and rock bands and dramas and whatever else artificially stimulate it, you know, give it drugs, so to speak, so that we somehow get a high view of God, because we really don't know theology. That's, that's a lot of the problem. Do you, do you see that? See, you can worship God even if there was no music, right? You can worship God during a, even a boring sermon. You can worship God as you drop your check into the offering box, You don't need a light show in a rock band to do that. Anyway, boy, I could park there on a hobby horse, but let's move on. Number two, we see here, it is good to declare the Lord. That's what verse two says. It says, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. This is a good thing for you to do. It should be a delightful thing. It's the most reasonable thing for you to do. Now, there's a lot to declare about God. But this psalm, interestingly, only mentions two attributes. Wow, we, we can make a huge list. But notice it mentions God's love and faithfulness. And so it's fitting to proclaim these truths about God. Of course, it's also fitting... You can talk about all his other attributes and characteristics. But here in this verse, it mentions his love. What is that? Well, his love refers to his loyal love. Hesed is the Hebrew word. It's unconditionally directed toward his people. In other words, it's not based upon your performance. It's not based upon do you merit his love, because none of us do. It's unconditional. God just chooses to love you. And even when you mess up, like I did this week, (laughs) right? And I worship myself instead of God, God still chooses to love you. 
It's unconditionally directed toward his people. Likewise, his faithfulness, also mentioned here, causes him to remain devoted to his people. It's a cause for great praise, isn't it? Just those two attributes alone are enough to to help us to understand it is a good thing to praise God. It's delightful. It's reasonable. It's splendid. And by the way, notice it's to be done both, according to verse 2, in the morning and at night. And here's the point, my friends. Worship of God, praising of God's to be done 24-7. All the time. So you'll, you'll start to see the theme coming out here, right? Ceaseless praise of God is a good thing for his people. Number three, verse three also mentions it's good to play music to the Lord. And it mentions a few instruments there. So verse three says, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. So I'm not sure what There are some people who, through the centuries, have thought that music is worldly. In other words, using musical instruments is worldly. Well, if you read your Bibles, you'll see places like Psalm 92, many others mention musical instruments. So clearly God loves musical instruments. So the instrument is not evil. Please understand that. It's how it's used. Just like a lot of things today. Technology and other things are not inherently evil. It's, what do we do with it? So God says it's delightful, it's reasonable, it's a splendid, glorious thing for us to use the musical abilities that he gives us to to worship him through the music. The music itself can bring him honor and glory. Now, it doesn't even say anything about words there. Did you notice that? It's just the, the melody, the music, if, if, you, if you will. The music itself can even glorify him. And now when we add beautiful, rich theology, like we do in our hymns, to that music, then it, it can be even more edifying to, to us as well then. So that's the goodness of praise to God. Let's move on to think about some reasons. Why, in other words, why, what are some reasons for praising God? Okay? And that's verses 4 through 11. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So verses 4 through 11 show us various reasons for praise. So let me just highlight them for you. In verses 4 through 7, we see praise for God's works. 
praise for God's works. And some various things are mentioned here. Like, for example, in verse 4, it says that God's works bring joy. Is that your experience? Do you see what God is, has done, is doing, and what he's going to do in the future? And, and does joy spring up in your heart? It should. It should. The works that God has done, is doing, and is going to do is meant to bring him honor and glory. But in verse 5, we see his works are also great. His works are profound, in fact. And that's like better than great. They're profound. And in verses 6 and 7, it, it talks about his works are mysterious. In other words, we don't fully comprehend. We don't fully understand what God is doing, do we? We don't. Sometimes we look at stuff, we read the news or whatever it is, and we understand God's sovereign over various things, and we're like, oh, I, I don't get it. What's God up to now? I don't understand, but I believe. I believe. God is working somehow, some way. Sometimes I feel like what verse 6 is talking about, the stupid man. <laughs> right? Verse 6 talks about the stupid man. By the way, that's just somebody who is who is senseless and dull, doesn't know how deep God's ways are. And, and Well, none of us fully comprehend God, do we? In fact, God himself says in the Bible his ways are incomprehensible. They're beyond finding out. So he, can't, uh, he cannot praise him whom he doesn't understand. These people can't see the great works of God, and they're described as wicked people in verse 7. And so God describes them like grass. In other words, they temporarily flourish, but they're eventually doomed to destruction forever. They're wicked. They don't understand God and what he's doing. And so you might ask, well, then what are God's works that merit worship? It doesn't get into real specifics here in Psalm 92. So let me just quickly guide you through some things the book of Revelation mentions. Revelation tells us uh, some, some ways and some reasons, if you will, for worship of God. And some of these we actually see taking place in heaven, and right there at the throne room of God. So we're going to use Revelation as a guide for the various works that merit worship of God. Number one is creation. God's special creation merits our worship. Not of the creation, of course. <laughs> we don't worship the creation, we worship the Creator. But look, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord. This is, here's the creatures at the throne of God in heaven, worshiping Him. And, and look at the reason. Worthy are you, our, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. Right? That's the reason. Creation. Number two is redemption. Redemption is just where God saves his people. He buys us from the slave market of sin with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He ransoms us. Redemption. 
is the second reason that merits worship of God. Revelation 5.9 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That's referring to Jesus. He's the only one worthy to do this. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Why are they worshiping God? Because Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again according to the Scriptures. Number three, the third reason to worship God is because of His sovereign rulership. He reigns supreme over all of His creation. Revelation eleven fifteen says, There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Folks, in heaven, they worship God because He is a sovereign ruler and is worthy of that praise. Number four, in heaven they worship God because of His righteous judgment. Revelation 14.7 says, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him. Whoa. Do you ever worship God because of His judgment? (laughs) We should. Heaven does. And number five, we should worship God because of marriage to His people. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. My friends, if you are a part of the church, And I don't mean the local church, because there's unbelievers who attend local churches. But I mean if you're part of the bride of Christ, the one true church. If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, your faith lies in Jesus alone, then you are a part of Jesus' bride. Jesus one day will come to claim his bride, and he will marry his bride. And it will be a permanent marriage. There'll never be a divorce. He loves his bride. So those are some reasons the book of Revelation tells us of of why we're to worship God. I would like to expand on just one of those. I don't know if you think about this one enough. It's that first one, creation. Creation. Because of creation... It says that God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because He is the one who created all things. Let me just mention a few things that the Bible talks about that bring God honor and glory. I'm going to start small and build big. All right? I thank my wife for telling me about this one because we were discussing and meditating on the scriptures together. And the first one is ants. You see those little creatures on the screen there? Ants are amazing. God loves ants. God made ants. Why? To bring him honor and glory. Did you know Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 says, you should go to the ant. Look to the ant. You should do that every once in a while. When you see ants, go and look at them. And remember Proverbs chapter 6. And you remember what God says, I am to look at the ant. Why? 
Because Proverbs 6, verse 6 says, Go to the Antos Lugger, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Very industrious little creatures, aren't they? I know sometimes they can be obnoxious. And they find their ways into places you don't want them to be. Trust me, I know. Many years ago, my wife and I one time made a gingerbread house. A lot of work went into that gingerbread house. A lot of sugar went into that gingerbread house. If you know anything about ants, you know they love sugar. Anyway, we we left the gingerbread house sitting on the, the bench in the kitchen, and we woke up in the morning to find it swarming with thousands of ants inside and outside. And I was like, wow, they're amazing. So God says, go to the ant, look to the ant. So I'm, I am, I'm looking at many of them, thousands in fact. Where are they coming from? <laughs> I followed this black line down the bench, around the kitchen floor, on the wall, down the hallway, out the garage door, on, going along the garage door walls, out to the garage door, the big one, the tilt door, going outside, several meters long. It was a massive wall of ants. We immediately dealt with them. I, were lo- I was looking at the ants, I was, and, and, and I was thinking, they're, they're amazing. But they were where they didn't belong. <laughs> so I dealt with them, <laughs> right? But we can learn lots of things from ants. They're amazing creatures. One of the things I learned, for example... Did you know that many ants can lift up to 50 times their own body weight? 50 times. That's incredible. And you say, big deal. They don't weigh very much. All right, well, put it, you, you, whatever your body weight is, I won't ask, but whatever your body weight is, you just times that by 50. That's kind of like the equivalent of you lifting up a van, a vehicle, a heavy vehicle, and you just walk a couple kilometers carrying that thing. You, you try that sometime, and then look to the ant and, and be amazed. You say, wow, God is amazing. That's, that's the whole point of the ant. Another one the Bible mentions, another creature that brings him honor and glory is the eagles. I thank my son for this one, because I was wanting him to think, what, what creatures do you see in creation that bring God honor and glory. The Bible talks a lot about eagles. There's some big eagles out there. Not, not this one, but there, there's, uh, I know there's some eagles like in Africa and the Philippines and places. They're massive. Not as big as our former New Zealand eagle, the host eagle. But there's some that have a wingspan of eight feet. Razor-sharp talons or claws capable of killing and, and carrying prey, some, some even small deer and monkeys. They can even catch fish. They're better fishermen than I am. They have amazing eyesight. In fact, their eyesight is better than yours, and certainly better than mine. That's not saying much. They have five times. This is all coming from God, the Creator. He's given them five times the sensory cells that you and I have that enable them to see objects twice as far away as we can. I read somewhere that if they could read a newspaper, 
which I don't, I don't think they can. But if they could read a newspaper, they would be able to read the newspaper almost two kilometers away. Up to a mile, it was said, they would be able to read a newspaper. So whereas human beings see just three basic colors, eagles see five colors, which enable them, of course, even well-camouflaged prey hiding down in the grass or a, or a fish in the water cannot escape their amazing eyesight. And did you know God also loves eagles? Because in the tribulation to come, that seven-year tribulation that Revelation talks about, God is going to call upon the eagles to proclaim woe to an unrepentant planet. Here's what Revelation 8 verse 13 says. I hear an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Here's what it says. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Eagles are God's messengers doing His bidding and proclaiming glory and praise to God, the Creator. Number three. Did you know the wind praises God? It brings God honor and glory. Hurricanes, as far as I understand, create the greatest winds of all. In fact, I read about back in 1998, Hurricane Hurricane Mitch caused an estimated 11,000 deaths in Central America, obliterated at least 100 bridges just in the country of Honduras destroyed 95% of their crops. The Bible talks about wind. Here's what it says. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who brings forth the wind from His storehouses. God's in charge of the wind. So every time you see a hurricane in the news, it's a time for you to worship God. The lightning also praises God. And no, lightning is not cool. In fact, it's the very opposite. It's very, very hot. Uh, There's some, so you could say that's cool lightning, but that's not actually cool. That's not cool. It's hot. In fact, It can actually heat up stuff around it up to 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If you don't know Fahrenheit, that's 27,000 degrees Celsius. It's very hot. So an average bolt packs a wallop of several hundred million volts. volts, Sorry. And a lot of amps. (laughs) And that's why some people die. Did you know that Psalm 97 talks about lightning? Verse 4 says that his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The implication is, by the way, so should we. We should tremble when you see lightning. Give praise to God. The Bible also talks a lot about stars. Let me encourage you, look at the night sky every once in a while. Notice the stars. Particularly notice the Milky Way galaxy. 
there are some 100 billion stars that light up our Milky Way galaxy just in our galaxy alone. And did you know there's billions and billions of galaxies? Every time we build bigger and more powerful telescopes, they keep finding more. (laughs) The Bible says that God not only created all of those stars, the Bible says God set all those stars in their place. Psalm 148, verse 4 says, Praise Him, all you shining stars. Psalm 147, verse 4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. One of those stars, just an average star, nothing spectacular about our star, in other words, our sun, other than the fact that God put it in exactly the right spot so we're not consumed by it. And he didn't put it too far away so we would have life on our planet. Our sun is amazing, even though it's just an average star. It has a volume of 1.3 million times that of Earth. In other words, you could put 1.3 million Earths inside our sun. You say, wow, that's really big. Well, you just study some of the other bigger stars out there. They're way bigger than our sun. And so it's a good thing that God put our sun 93 million miles away. Because if it was any closer, you would need more than sunscreen. 50 power sunscreen would not be enough, would it? You would be consumed. In fact, if you could somehow get to the surface of the sun, which you can't, as soon as you touch it, you'd be instantly vaporized. It's powerful. Incredibly powerful. In fact, just the surface temperature of the sun is 5,500 degrees Celsius, which is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, for those of you from the States. So the sun is continually turning oxygen into helium, converting 4 million tons of matter into energy every second it's a good thing the greenies can't put a stop to that (laughs) we'd be in trouble wouldn't they and that's that's a good thing what what god is doing god's in charge of our sun because the light from the sun is is what is making life possible on planet earth and so every time you see the whole photosynthesis process going on you see You look at your skin and say, ooh, cool, God's making vitamin D. Every time you see that, you don't see that going on, but you feel it. Every time, you should just give some praise to God. Glorify Him and what He's doing. And the sun may be mighty, and in our eyes it is, but the Bible also says that God orders the sun around. The sun's not in charge, God is. So if God tells the sun to retreat... It retreats. If God says, go to sleep, it goes to sleep. (laughs) If I want an eclipse, God says, I get an eclipse. His creation obeys his voice. In fact, here's what Job chapter 9 verse 7 says, that God commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. 
course, our sun is one of the many stars. And then if you get even bigger than a star, you eventually get a galaxy. So like I said, our Milky Way galaxy is composed of approximately 100 billion stars. Did you know that our galaxy is a very small one? There's some that are way bigger. Let me give you a beautiful one here. It's beautiful. It's amazing that we can even see it. Because that galaxy there is 69 million light years away. It's so far away, we have to measure in light years. And you say, well, how far is that? Well, you just measure the distance light can travel in a year and then times that by 69 million years. (laughs) That's how far away this is. Light travels very, very fast. But it would take light from this galaxy 69 million years to get here. Just the light. It's an amazing place. It's called a barred spiral galaxy, and astronomers have given it a name. It's called NGC 1300. And you say, well, man, that's a long ways away, and and for many of the centuries of human history, nobody even knew it was there. So why did God create that? Why is it there? Why is it there? Well, Psalm 19, verse 1, answers that question. Why did God create those galaxies? Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why it's there. It's not there for your purpose, is it? You're to look at it and say, whoa, God's amazing. He's big and powerful and worthy of praise. So those are some reasons as we think about his creation in particular of why you need to worship God. Let's get back to Psalm 92. Let's finish. When we come to verse 8, and I want you to notice that verse 8 starts with a contrasting word. The very first word in my English Standard Version here, verse 8, is the word but. But is a contrasting word. And so that's going to tell us something. And one of the things it's, it's, it's showing us here is the, the second reason for praising God is His exaltation. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Now that's probably not one you often think of when you want to glorify God and praise Him and worship Him. That's probably not the first one on your list, but it should be on our list somewhere. And we see that his exaltation, according to verse 8, is forever. Forever. It's not temporary. It's forever. And notice in verse 9 that his enemies are defeated. Now, some of our enemies may not feel too defeated at the moment, but Here's the beauty of reading the end of the Bible. Read the end. If you don't feel like your enemies are defeated, read the end. Read Revelation. We see that ultimately, we we know that Satan's works were defeated with Christ at the cross. Ultimately, we see in Revelation the final end of Satan and all those demons, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. 
by the way, they're not in charge. You know, you've probably seen those comic strips that make jokes about, you know, hell. You know, like Satan's actually down there in charge of hell, and he's down there torturing people who are thrown in hell. That, that's absolute rubbish. The Bible nowhere even alludes to that or says anything about that. He's not in charge. He's just like all the other inhabitants of hell. By the way, hell was originally created for Satan and the demons. That's where he's going to be in the end. He is defeated. He is a defeated foe. Sin has been dealt the ultimate blow as well, hasn't it? When Christ died on the cross, he dealt with your greatest problem, sin. With sin, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus arose from the grave, he also conquered death. Our enemies have been dealt with, are being dealt with, and ultimately will be dealt with. And so because of that, God is worthy of praise. He is to be exalted. God's enemies can't succeed long term. They they may appear like now some of God's enemies are succeeding, but it's only a temporary thing. It's only an appearance. God's going to see to their, their final end, the end they deserve. Number three, Praise God for His enablement. Praise God for His enablement. Look at verse 10. This refers to God, which says, You've been exal- You have exalted my horn. My horn, that's me, you. Like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. God is the one gracing us, if you will, enabling us. And notice in verse 10 that the psalmist's horn is exalted. That's just a picturesque way of saying that the psalmist turned, or psalmist triumphed, if you will, in the face of adversity. You need to understand something in, in the psalmist's view and in, in the Jews of this time. An animal horn represented strength. Animal horns very, very strong. You ever seen like a an ox, a wild ox, or any any kind of creature that has a horn? They're amazing, incredibly strong. Some animals even fight each other with those horns, and they can endure smashings like incredible smashings. You're like, how do they do that? Well, God made them to to do that. They're strong. We also see the psalmist's head is anointed here in verse ten. The oils that God poured upon him pictured much joy in the midst of his labor. It speaks of a renewed consecration to serve God. Many times kings would be anointed with oil, like like David was. David was anointed oil, symbolizing this consecration to, to do his duty. He was to be king of Israel. And that's what the psalmist's head here was anointed with oil. But in verse 11, we see the psalmist's enemies are defeated. So he has many reasons to praise God. And he's, these are just some of the things he's, he's thinking of and doing here. But what are the results of praise? We often don't think about this, but Psalm 92 does think of some results of praise. Look at verse 12. 
the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. So this psalm gives us some results of praise. It's concluding with these blessings that rest upon the righteous, the ones who praise God. Number one, you'll see in verse 12 that the righteous are spiritually productive. They're spiritually productive. And it gives two analogies, two illustrations there in verse 12. The righteous who is spiritually productive is like a palm tree. <laughs> now that, that illustration may not work for you. So you need to understand that they're bearing fruit in every season, in every circumstance. That's the point that God's trying to make there. This righteous person is going to bear fruit for God in every season and in every circumstance. It's, in other words, it's symbolizing permanence. It's permanent. They're spiritually productive. They're also mentioned in verse 12 like a cedar tree. Again, that illustration may not work for you, but if you understand the Middle East, you'd know in the Middle East that cedar trees are the largest trees there in the Middle East. It's a symbol of strength. And so because of the, you know, the very arid terrain of Israel, a lush tree served as a fitting symbol of God's blessing. It was a fitting symbol of God's blessing. And so God's saying, hey, the righteous are spiritually productive. Number two, the righteous are securely planted. They're securely planted. Because when you look at verse 13, it says, notice the imagery here. Where are they planted? Well, verse 13 says, they're planted in the house of Yahweh. They're planted, verse 13 says, in the courts of our God. That's basically saying the same thing. And you say, well, what's the point? The righteous are securely planted in the house of Yahweh. All right, great. Well, it was a source of vitality. <laughs> and notice where it comes from. Where does the source come from? Not in themselves, not in you. The source comes from God. A tree planted in the courtyard of the temple symbolized the thriving conditions of those who maintain a close relationship with God. Are you doing that? You doing that? You maintaining this close relationship with God, abiding in His court, if you will, in His temple? Well, if you do, you'll be securely planted. Number three, the righteous are steadfastly fruitful. According to verse 14, you will be fruitful. This is interesting because verse 14 says, you will bear fruit in old age. So don't let old age <laughs> uh, sneak up on you or get you or be an excuse or whatever. The, the point here is that they're never losing their spiritual vitality. Just because you get old doesn't mean you cannot be steadfastly fruitful. 
This is the result of praising God. But it's also talking about staying fresh in old age. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to stay fresh. In other words, you're going to be full of godly virtues. All because of what? Not Again, not you, but you're rooted in God. Continually worshiping Him. By the way, worshiping Him both in good times and during the bad times. Number four. Fourth result of praise is found in verse 15. It is that the righteous are strongly passionate. Why, why are they passionate? Why should they be passionate? Well, again, it looks to God. We see something about God in verse 15. We see that, that He, Yahweh, the Lord, is upright. He's always doing what is blameless and right. That's what it means to be upright. In other words, he's doing what's right. He's blameless. God can never be accused, should not be accused, of ever doing anything wrong. Because he's upright. But he's also a rock. But notice he's my rock. Not somebody else's. I love this. He's my rock. He's your rock. And when you think of a rock, you need to think of something that's perfectly stable (laughs) not the kind of rock that i sometimes try to use when i'm crossing a river you ever done that you try to cross some river or stream because you don't want to get wet you don't want to get cold and so you step on it and then you you, because the rock isn't stable you, you fall over and you get wet anyway ever happened to you happens to me when i go hunting sometimes but god's not like that kind of a rock because he's perfectly stable And when you put your weight on him, when you rely on him, you can always trust in him to not let you down, literally and figuratively, because he's perfectly stable. He's your rock. But this is interesting. It says that the Lord is holy. He is a God who is totally unique, totally separate and distinct from his creation. There is nothing else like God, and that's why you should be strongly passionate about Him. He's totally unique. And so when you combine all this together, Psalm 92 is telling us this theme. Again, I'll remind you, it is good to ceaselessly praise God. It is good. In other words, remember, good means it's something delightful. It's reasonable. It's splendid. It's glorious. It's it's better than just beneficial. It's way better than that. Praising God is a lifestyle for a believer. Should be, anyway. And so it's important for Christians to gather faithfully on the Lord's day to give glory to God. And so this is something that's a repeated emphasis in Scripture. It's repeated throughout the Psalms. We, We see it even in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Verse 25, let says, let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. So why do we meet together? Because you can worship God by yourself. <laughs> you can do that 24-7. But why does God command us to meet together corporately as a body, a local body of believers? Why? So you, we can encourage each other. Encourage one another. So believers must make it a regular practice then to come to God's house on God's day 
God's people to hear God's word and sing God's praises. It's all about Him. Such a spiritual discipline is necessary for your faith, for your faith to be vibrant, to be passionate, to be alive. And so this psalm is echoing this truth, if you will, and becomes a really strong exhortation for you and I to then join with all the saints in worshiping God. And so may this song direct all Christians to praise God with enlightened minds and joyful hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Psalm 92. Thank you for the exhortation here that it is delightful and beneficial and reasonable and glorious and splendid to give thanks to you, to sing praises to your name. May we understand that our chief end is to enjoy you and glorify you forever. We will do it in heaven, so may we do it now. May this be a lifestyle. Father, convict us where we, we too often worship ourselves every day of the week. We love to worship ourselves. It's just kind of the natural thing for us to do. So show us when we do, but show us how to worship you. So may this psalm here help to answer some questions and guide us in our worship, in our praise of you. So may our praise of you be ceaseless, a 24-7 thing. And so as we go throughout the day, through our work, our sitting down, our lying down, our sleep, whatever it is we do, May we think of you and meditate upon you and praise you and worship you. And may the watching world, unbelieving watching world around us, notice how much we love God. May they want to know that kind of a God, a God that is worthy of all praise and worship. So direct our hearts that that our treasure would be in the right spots, because where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Of course, where our heart is, that's where we're going to worship. So, Father, may we be people who love you with all our, our entire beings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.